I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Yeah, hi, welcome everyone, and thanks for being here, Kay, and thank you all for being here. Um, and congratulations on Mrs. S, which came out last Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the book is absolutely wonderful um, and has rightly received much praise. Um, just a few more words about you by way of introduction. So you're based in the Isle of Lewis. Yeah, correct. correct. Yeah. Yep. Can you explain where that is? Because I didn't know. Why or where? Where, where? where? Oh, right. Uh, it's... Uh... I was like, well, Most we, people we need probably to know. Off of why? Yeah. <laughs> why do you live there? Why? Tell me. Uh, it's if you go to the Isle of Skye, I think everyone knows the Isle of Skye, and then take a two-hour ferry. It's there, yeah. out to Hebrides. The yeah. perfect place to write a book. The, An amazing a very novel. Cliche, yeah, well, yeah. very cliche place to write a book. Yeah. Um, so your poetry has appeared in Poetry Review and Five Dials, and was shortlisted for the White Review Poetry Prize in 2021. The same year that you were shortlisted for the White Review Fiction Prize for your short story Eggs. Um, in 2020, you were the runner-up of the Ivan Juritz Prize and the Laura Kinsella Fellowship. And Mrs. S is your debut novel. So the book is absolutely beautiful. I urge everyone to buy a copy tonight if you haven't already read it. Um, it would be really helpful just in terms of spoilers to know <laughs> who has read, had a chance to read the novel already. Oh. Okay. Cool. We're like 50-50. We're going to try really hard to avoid spoilers. But one <laughs> thing I will say is that I was telling you that I quite naively thought that it would be a will they, won't they, where they don't. And you were like, nah. how could, nah. <laughs> how could they not? Nah. Yeah. And that's the, that we'll hope that that's the only thing that we give away. And yeah, I fell in love with the book. I thought I would fall in love with Mrs. S because she is quite my type. But I actually... <laughs> <laughs> fell most in love with the housemistress, which is the kind of friend character in the book who we'll yeah. talk about more later, who's a kind of queer friend that um, the, the matron meets at the boarding school. And we, we have disclosed that they do, so there is sex in the book. Just a bit, yeah. Just a bit of sex. And we <laughs> thought we should tell you that because it will help you all buy the book. Um, although we should issue some kind of health warning about reading it in this heat. Oh, well, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. No, but at the same time, it's a fa it's like a really fantastic beach read because it's quite sexy, you know? Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. But like a highbrow beach yeah. read. Yeah, um, like no fainting. We are only fainting. No, you might faint reading it. <laughs> um, I nearly did. And so, yeah, tonight we're going to avoid spoilers. Later, we are going to have a conversation about who would play Mrs. S in a film, <laughs> which will be fun. Um, but before that, we'll just talk through the book and... At the end, there will be an opportunity for questions. Um, but first of all, you're going to read us an excerpt, so anyone who hasn't read it yet gets to hear some. I am, yeah. Apologies, I still sort of read like a kid at assembly, so it might be a bit of a... And not a lot of eye contact, but... Um, I'm reading a bit from... It's the extract in Granta, but I suppose this happens... We'll just call it pre-sex now, I guess. Like, that's the marker. It's just a pre and a post. Um, and Mrs S and the protagonist are sort of getting closer... Closer and closer, in a, in a way... Made that sound more mysterious than it is. 
We come out of the trees and stagger further down. The slope is steeper now. A sound of water increases. She crouches, picks a clover and bites behind its head. She doesn't offer or ask me to do the same. Instead, the flavour is announced, sweet, something like honey. Wonderful, she confirms. Her personalities catch like loose thread on a branch. The old-fashioned headmaster's wife and this person, setting her teeth to a stem's nape, stood tall in her pink shorts. Almost there. Scree is loose under my feet. Water appears, a clear river. Heather makes soft mounds. She whips through the bracken, points to a distant fell and suggests climbing it, not today, but one day. I am hopeful. We drop down onto a track. There is nothing but the rhythm of our shoes on the dusty surface, birdsong, breath, focused in the heat. I want to ask her how she, how they, found this place, but the quiet is too lovely. Familiarity, a new familiarity, this time bodily, little clutches of fabric, the swipe of our thighs. This is it. At first I can't see anything, only slabs of grey stone. She moves towards a copse of only five or six trees, slender silver bark, green leaves. I watch her first, standing at an edge, peering down, pleased. It needed to be as good as she remembered. Without waiting for me, she removes her white shirt, each button a piece of my own spine undone. Her swimming costume is an athlete's, black, streamlined. I am surprised by her strength. She adjusts the fit, a finger slid underneath the short straps, then the place where the suit meets her hips. She catches me watching her. I blush. She calls to me. My anxiety has its own heartbeat, desperate for the cool across my sticky face. I wear a sleeveless T-shirt, the binder hidden underneath, underpants too, the T-shirt's hem past my hips, stopping mid-thigh. You'll go in wearing that. Yeah, no costume. I didn't bring one with me. Never thought it would be warm enough to swim. Little did you know. She accepts my lie. My costume balled up in my underwear drawer. I no longer know how to wear it. I reach her at the edge. She has waited for my reaction. Below is a large waterfall, a pool eroded beneath it. Bigger than I imagined. Enough to spend time swimming to either side. Jeweled surface. A fish, brown trout, she explains, is visible deep on the stony bed. It's beautiful. It is. She clambers down and dives. Muscle, water, her back is a swimmer's back. All arch and grace. Thank Lula. you. Thank you. So get some trading. Thank God there's aircon. Um, I related so much to the book because I went to an all girls school and I'm gay. And there's going to be a lot of gay chat in this talk. Um, and also the, cl- the class stuff. So essentially, this character, the matron, feels kind of constantly surveilled and constantly sort of hypervigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, a different class to the girls at the boarding school and also presents in a masculine way. And I think anyone who's felt sort of different in a space could also maybe relate to that. But mm-hmm. I just wondered if you had been in a similar environment in your life where you perhaps draw it. just felt like yeah. you might have been drawing from something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was in the same situation, so an all-girls environment, and even though at the time, I guess, I hadn't quite translated my body in the way that the narrator has in the book, I definitely felt like it's more a... It's like a retrospect, feeling in retrospect, isn't it? Like, I knew something was different. I knew I was gay, didn't even have a language to express that at the time. So I think... But I wasn't... With the book, I wasn't interested in writing 
a coming of age story in that way. Like I wanted to have the queerness posited and set in stone from the start mm -hmm. um, so that the protagonist is speaking from a place of self-knowledge, but then mm. with potential for that to be extended, I guess, as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, where did the sort of seed of the idea come from? Because you told me that you, um, you quite apologetically told me that you wrote this book in a sort of feverish four months during the pandemic. Yeah, no one likes hearing that. It's no really one likes annoying. that you're productive in the pandemic. Subjectively really yeah. annoying if you're a writer. <laughs> Definitely really um, annoying. But was it in your mind for a long time before that? Uh, ugh, I know I'm supposed to say that it was, but I, like, I, I think it was more, and it's the quote that haunts me everywhere I go, I wanted to write a horny lesbian novel. Thus goes, I mean, it forever immortalised saying that about 8,000 times now, but it, that was the main impulse of writing, it was that, and I thought that it would be this very straightforward, happy ending, beginning, middle and end hmm. uh, plot. And of course, when I started writing it, it wasn't because queer desire is so complicated, so wonderfully complicated in so many ways, but it couldn't be as clear-cut as I imagined. Like, I thought they'd be running off into sunset together and living happily. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> oh, do they? <laughs> why did you want to write a horny lesbian novel? Because there's not enough of them. Right, OK. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think because I felt like uh, there, are, there are so many amazing lesbian novels from across the ages. I think uh, I definitely don't want to be one of those queers that's like, no one did it before I did. But I think in terms of sexuality, and expressing sexuality in terms of sex, mm -hmm. it felt like maybe that part of it was lacking a bit in like the mm -hmm. current market. So I, I feel like I wanted to just throw loads of sex in it was my plan. Right, so when you think of horny lesbian novels of the past, often they, there is all the same they sort titillate. of longing stuff and they titillate, yeah. but they, they're not kind they of... Don't, they don't really swear. go there. No, they don't really go there. You can yeah. swear, I think. I don't think I can say the F word. <laughs> oh, I can. They don't fuck, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was say. <laughs> yeah, okay. What are some horny lesbian novels that you come to mind? Uh, what, like titillating ones? Well, I Price mean, of Salt is an immediate connection because yeah. of the age gap as well. Price of Salt definitely was in the back of my mind. I think there's lots of books where it feels like there's queer longing that maybe isn't explicit mm -hmm. and now that I'm sitting here I can't think of any of them because I'm so nervous and I'm nervous no, enough well what feels different about this having read quite a lot of horny lesbian novels although maybe not enough is that I don't I didn't feel that I had read one where the protagonist was more mask mm. presenting or, or trans mask and that was kind of what felt new and that you know that trope of the horny lesbian novel or the horny lesbian film of the the longing lesbian gaze, mm. that felt different in this because the gaze wasn't just about longing, it was also about, as I said before, surveillance and vigilance and also, I think, f feeling othered through gender nonconformity. And mm. that was what I felt Mrs S brought to the genre that was we haven't had enough of. Yeah, I think... Uh like Leslie Feinbergstone, Butch Booze, obviously. Mm -hmm. like that yep. book was in the back of my head as well. And I think that idea of how you want to be seen and how that becomes involved in the language of sex and in sex itself as well was so important. I didn't know that would be important to begin with, but of course it became important when writing sex, which is something that I really wanted to do well. Obviously, you're going to write a, a horny book. You have to make sure you don't mess up that part of it. But that idea of interiority exteriority like how those two things interact especially when you're 
being intimate with someone, now I sound like my mum. <laughs> but you know what I mean, that, that idea of um, this strange mirror that gets held up in those circumstances as well, I yeah. think. That mimicry that happens between two people too. Yeah. Um, so you end up seeing yourself. I think sex can also be very exposing in that way where you see something mm. new that's potential in that act as well. So that felt important too. Yeah. And it is a queer romance, but it's also... A sort of fits into the boarding school novel genre. Am I describing that right? I don't really, no, no. I don't... And do you know, I just thought of another titillating lesbian novel. Yeah, Sweet Days of Discipline by Flo Yegi, which is really I amazing. Read that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Also Sweet... set in a boarding school. Okay. Sweet Days of Discipline. Were you into the sort of? Bo- I'm told there is a genre of like boarding school. Uh, there's a genre for everything in there. <laughs> yeah. And are you into that genre? Was that uh, something you referenced? If, like, I'm not. It wouldn't be something that I would seek out. But I think when I was writing the book, of course, I wanted yeah. to do my due diligence. Also, there's lots of books that I love, like The Sweet Days of Discipline. I'm is a I'm a huge fan of Flo Yegi's work, and um, Violet Ledoux's Therese and Isabel and La Batade as well. Obviously, there's lots of horny lesbian boarding school scenes and that too um and also again that i think especially there's no there's no sex in sweet days of discipline but there is in la batade and that leduc does something very similar with the mimicry and the language of sex meaning more than the sex itself and how you're able to reflect how the the work that language can do which is always a surprise to me when it comes to sex i think because most of the time language feels like something you're bumping up against but actually in sex writing sometimes it can feel like a real possibility. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk more about that and specifically the way you write sex later, but I'm interested in how deep you go into... So for anyone who hasn't read it, the, the boarding school is kind of presided over by a character called the dead author who, was, who went to the school right, and became a famous author, is kind of mm-hmm. known but is never named. Mm-hmm. And... I would love to hear more about that character and why, why she exists. I think within the setting of the boarding school and also in our current moment, I wanted to try and make visible that obsession over nostalgia. And I think that was one way of doing it. And, it, and with the dead author, of course, because she's a woman and I think that like femininity in the backdrop of the school is very important. It was able to do twice the work linguistically and also this idea I think like the idea that oh god I'm going to sound so pretentious now explain your own writing it's terrible you never do it but I think you just have to write that one off yeah right yeah <laughs> so she becomes like a, I think like the idea of the feminine ideal becoming this thing that looms yeah. as well which sounds so bad out loud but I think that was like something that interested me too and I, the girls are supposed to kind of live up to this or like aspire yeah, okay yeah and it's also maybe something that should be moved on from Right, and what's interesting is that they are all... She hangs over them like, this is how you should be, or this is the figure that we are aspiring to. But then I like how your protagonist at one point actually questions whether she was... The dead author was queer as well, because she was miserable. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. And I have that uh, the scene where she masturbates... Well, the protagonist masturbates over the idea of her as well. So, spoiler alert. Yeah. Can, can I just check? Can everyone at the back hear? Yeah, okay? sorry, am I not talking yeah, too quietly? Good. Okay. I feel like I'm mumbling. So, into you lean into the sort of pomp of the boarding school, and I wondered if you're interested in this sort of ridiculousness of British tradition. Definitely. Yeah, there's a quote, they're doing this sort of run thing, and it says, this is a historic event. 
they pay for the history. And I, it, you tread the line very carefully between sort of mocking it and just being the characters kind of like fascinated by it as someone who's from Australia. Yeah. But I'd love for you to say more about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think probably that line sums it up. I think there's an interesting parallel in ideas of the surveillance between the protagonist and the way the school functions too. It's like, I think the protagonist also feels watched in how out of place they feel and where they are as well. And I think the school, the architecture of it is supposed to be a bit of a leaning on that too. And it was important to me to represent the sameness of the those sorts of institutions so that they aim for a kind of sameness and they produce a sameness. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, I think... That's why maybe I wanted the, school, the boarding school to feel like a generic environment. So if you've recognised it within British culture or if you've been to one, then it was able to be almost interchangeable, I guess. Yeah, yeah this focus on conformity. I yeah. remember at the girls' school I went to, it was like a convent school. Everyone had to have the same, exact same length skirt. Yeah. And it was... And, you know, they're just, like, factories for gay people. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they are. No, they are. That's, that's, like, what happens, isn't it? I know. Like, you oppress and repress all you want, but it's... But also, yeah. they're quite... Factories for gay people. Yours, <laughs> yours, yeah, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's, it's having true. that opposite effect. But you're, the school that you paint a picture of, the girls are... They're a little bit mean, but they're not actually as mean as I remember girls at school. No, I didn't want to take that too... It was important. Too easy? Yeah, too easy. And I think also it's not that would do a disservice to what's happening in those spaces as well. If it was if you're able to place too much blame on the girls themselves, that seems to be the problem in and of itself Mm. that we live through anyway, is that there's a lot of Yeah, so I wanted them to feel more like a a Greek chorus than something to be judged, which is why I think having them as the girls was Mm. not supposed to be cruel. It was supposed to be not a get-out clause, but a way of seeing them as something that's being landscaped, not something that's able to have individuality, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, just to talk about the form of the book, so anyone who hasn't read it yet, again, there's not kind of clearly delineated speech and speech marks. So the speech flows within the prose and is not always attributed, which I actually found really easy to... I'm glad that you found yeah, it. Yeah, because a lot of the reviews are sort of saying, like, <laughs> at moment, some I did, at, at the odd moment, I, I was unsure of who was saying what. Mm. Um, I didn't really find that. That's a relief for me to say thank you. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> um, but I wondered if you could just speak to that choice a little further. Do you know, I, I think with the actual style of the book, not a lot of it was conscious decision-making. And then after that, I think I read... I wrote one chapter very... Actually, the swimming chapter was the first chapter that I wrote. I wrote that very furiously and then looked back to see what I'd done. And that's what I'd done. And I, I think in the end, I had to kind of back myself on that style because it was what was happening anyway. There's no, like, myth of the intellectual genius here. I was just like, oh, yeah, because that won't... I just keep doing it. And I think it would... I, I feel like... I st- it's funny when a book comes out because then you have to stand by these decisions that you didn't realise you were making. And I do stand by that decision because I think you want to be able to float in and around and outside of the protagonist's mind because that's the experience of the protagonist is this kind of watchfulness being watched and also being lost in all that and trying to work, trying to think through that in real time because I chose this very difficult, the tense is like impossible and I'd never do it again because it's so first person, very immediate present tense. And it does mean there's not a lot of room for anything outside of the body, I think is what I was aiming for. So everything's being processed, experienced in a very physical way, including language. Mm. 
sounding pretentious again, but I, that, I, that is what I was aiming for. And so now that it's being uh, brought up a lot, it's good to know that I can stand by it, I guess, having yeah. accidentally decided to do it. It is very immediate in terms of the body at all times. And I think that adds to the sense of feeling so... Con- the protagonist feeling so conscious of their body yeah. in that space, especially being called Miss the whole time, mm. which I don't know if anyone's had the experience of, like, if I'm in a shop and someone says madam i just drop into my body instantly and i know yeah. people feel that to different extents and i think that's the exact that's it dropping into your that feeling of being dropped into your body outside of your own control or something that was important to me because yeah. again a very familiar feeling for me as well so yeah. yeah but i i was just reading the piece in the current issue of the lrb about mrs oh. s and J- josie mitchell the writer talks about your decision not to sort of delineate who's saying what mm-hmm. or attribute speech and says it's a kind of mirroring um, between Mrs. S and the matron. So mm-hmm. at times you don't know whether Mrs. S is saying something or the matron saying something mm-hmm. or you maybe have to go back and check. And then I was like, this is incredible because this is the linguistic articulation of the lesbian urge to merge, <laughs> yeah. which is like... Mimicry, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um, was that an intention for you? Yeah, definitely. I think especially, again, like going back to sex writing and not just the act itself, but the language that leads into that, it felt important to have this slippage between the two characters um, mm. because there is like a lot of reflecting that happens. And I think the protagonist does... There's like plenty of times where they're wanting to be some kind of ideal for Mrs. S, which is also a very familiar lesbian feeling, I guess, which is kind of half what I mean by mimicry. I think for a sense of reality, which isn't necessarily what I'm most interested in, but I think in and around intimacy and sex, that idea of the speed and the rhythm of it, it means those two things. The self can get kind of merged by urge, you know. Yeah, (laughs) but also... Whatever type of romance it is, what you just said about wanting to be the ideal, I think you convey that so beautifully. And also turning someone else into an ideal, there's a part yeah. where you say, I am, I think you, sorry, I'm going to butcher this. I invent her when she's there and I, I invent her when she's not there and I invent her when she's there or something like that. Oh, you can probably correct me. No, no, I, well, I don't know off my heart. <laughs> that sounds about right though. I think, yeah, you know, when she's not around, I invent her. Something along those lines. This idea that the, protagonist is also a co-conspirator in that idea of an ideal so it's, mm-hmm. it's still also done you know I, towards the end of the book that felt important that it wasn't there's no hard done by no spoilers eh? no, no spoilers, spoilers. I'm not, okay no spoilers. just checking um yeah i think that i can't remember what i was saying sorry sorry, sorry. i'm gonna spoil it what was sorry. i gonna say I'm sure it's going to be out. By the genius, end of the book, sorry. That was okay. <laughs> I was scared there was a by the end. Of the, I invent her. Oh, the character. Yeah, when she's not. So this idea that the, the, the protagonist has also consciously participated in that idea of how you turn somebody into an ideal. Because it suits, mm. it can suit sex, it can suit, it can suit like the height of passion, doing that too. Height of passion, God. Where am I getting these phrases from? Um, you, you've come from a background of writing poetry and this is your first mm-hmm. novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't super happy that someone described the, the book as a long prose poem. <laughs> Only because it sounded like a burn when it was being said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> firstly, why is that annoying? And secondly, how did your work as a poet inform the writing of this? I mean, I could say what I think, which is just simply being able to do so much with a little. Like, your sentences are 
super short and super clean and they just give so much, but I'm sure you have a I'm not, different answer. I, I don't think, I'm a, it definitely isn't annoying. It's not annoying for it to be described as a long prose poem. I think only because it wasn't my, because I am so interested in prose poetry and I write that as well. The two experiences of execution feel very different. Yeah. I think with prose poetry, there's like a level of language that it's like hyper condensed, even more condensed than how I wrote Mrs. S. And it's also, I don't think that I could sustain a whole novel if I was writing a long prose poem because it's even more breathless in a way. Like what interests me in language, especially in poetry, is rhythm. And I think that's the one thing that gets carried across into my prose writing is that idea of like, I'm not just interested in the line, but maybe the paragraph, maybe the chapter. The chapters are all really short, but that's because there's like a pace that I can't like maintain beyond like a few thousand words, I suppose. And in that way, it feels very familiar to me in writing poetry because for me, that's also about rhythm, like rhythm comes first, I guess. That's the short sentences that are also driving people a bit bonkers, I think. But yeah. I love them. Good. Good. That, again, like, it's a little, like, they're sparse and it's Spartan, but it, mm. there's so much there. And also, it kind of adds to the sexiness because there's something withholding, a little bit withholding about, yeah. almost about the sentences themselves. Yeah. We're like, oh, give me a bit more. And it kind of, sort of, yeah, it kind of reflects the feeling the protagonist has towards Mrs. S. Yeah. I don't yes. know if that was intentional, but... Yeah, I think I had to find a style that would be able to cope with the sex writing and not have your fear, which is, like, getting a bad sex award. Like, it's <laughs> terrifying writing sex. Like, it's terrifying. Yeah. Because it's, like, it's a millimetre between good and bad sometimes. And um, yeah. it felt like with this, that I had to rehearse it. How do you rehearse writing sex? You had to re- oh, you had to rehearse I, the sex by re- having the sex. I, no, I rehearsed the writing. Okay. <laughs> but I'm really glad that's how that came across. <laughs> it sounds like you had the sex and then you wrote it down. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one to remember going forward. No, I, I practiced sex writing by... I wrote out a couple of scenes that didn't make it into the book, that didn't work, and then you adjust and go back. I also copied out a lot of passages from people who write sex really well. That's always my biggest tip. Co- copied out passages. What yeah, so like find somebody who writes sex in a way that you respond to and then copy it out. And I think that's again, goes back to rhythm. You can mm. find the rhythm in somebody else's work and not imitate it, but I'm you can s- like see what... You can understand while you're writing it out. It has to be, by, for me anyway, by hand, yeah. how they're breaking it down as well. That's, that's a good tip. It's I'm going to do tip, that. Yeah. And who, I was actually going to ask you who some of those people are. I mean, I think there's been one or two, well, I think I saw a comparison to Garth Greenwell somewhere. Yeah, I, I did a lot of cleanness because I think that mm. his sex writing is so precise and does that interiority so well um, without breaking pace in the sex itself. Like the, the movement between the physical and the emotional is so precise and again, very rhythmic. Um, also, I read a lot of uh, Marjorie Kemp by Robert Block. I think the sex writing in that is so extraordinary because it leaves so much room for a self-reflection, similar to Garth Greenwell. I think that's what interests me most. I think, like I said, with language, it can be largely frustrating to work with text, but when it comes to sex, it gets more interesting, I think, because you're actually able to add something different or you're able to slow it down in a way that becomes interesting and language actually functions for once in a way that um, adds something to reality, I think, mm. anyway. I actually did a writing sex class with Garth Greenwell because he is the master, in yeah. my opinion. And yeah. It was cool. He, we, we read a bunch of stuff that he thought did sex really well and one of the texts was from The Price of Salt. 
Oh, yeah, well, um, also the master. And a mixture of things. Luster, the book Luster, yep. I think, was in there. Raven Leilani, yeah, also um, amazing. Giovanni's room was in there. Yeah, also amazing. I mean, you can't get away with not having... Kind of shame and humiliation is such an important component in queer sex as well. Yeah. I think all sex, but queer sex especially, it's something that you have to also move through mm. in a way where it doesn't become tethered to it, but it is acknowledged, you know? Well, we should talk about shame and humiliation in the book because it's kind of there th- almost throughout. The girls humiliate the matron character mm-hmm. a little bit. The drama teacher humiliates the matron character a little bit. And I guess we should explain in which in what kind of ways, mm-hmm. um, just for anyone who hasn't read it, if you want to... Um, how the matron's kind of undone uh, by the... Yeah, the sh- where the sort of shame and humiliation comes from. I think I wanted it to be... It felt important that it was not subtle, but it was everyday, I suppose. So the matron's working in this all-girl school and the girls, obviously, at that age, are grappling with their own sexuality as yet unexpressed and also overly expressed, I guess. Which is also a familiar feeling that I have from being a teenager. Like I didn't want to lose that either in the book. Mm. Um, and there's like a decent amount of homophobia and... Because I'm interested in language, I guess, I also want to turn around a few words like dyke, like lesbian, and how they come out of different mouths, I suppose. Yeah. And the girls use those that language in a way to uh, kind of punish the matron and also to make... I think I don't even think... I think there's like a slight... There's a degree, of course, of not knowing the weight of what you're holding with those words too, I think, that I wanted to show in the girls too. But yeah, but they're kind of low-key bullies, I guess. Well, that kind of casual homophobia that's thrown around at school comes across. Mm. And it is homophobic, there's no denying that. But then also the way that the character feels about themselves or how just how uncomfortable they feel in that environment generally sort of then heightens. It's like they are being homophobic, but that character feels so different in that space mm. that it even heightens the effects of it. You can't help thinking that if they were in a different environment... I think there's also the, one of the earlier scenes that I wrote for everyone that hasn't read the book is a scene in which the girls are rehearsing a play and it's a play that's probably slightly beyond them in terms of context. It's a Lorca play called The House of Bernarda Alba and it has these five daughters that are very repressed by a kind of matriarchal mother figure. And it has like a pretty disturbing ending and these 13-year-old, 14-year-olds are being asked to act it out and that felt familiar to me as well at school is this idea of being held back in so many ways, but then pushed into these very adult arenas in other ways. And the matron's required to go and watch this rehearsal because uh, she has to take them back afterwards. And while the matron is there, they ask... They, I mean, I use they, them pronouns, and she, her, for the protagonist, so I'll switch between the two, but they are asked to stand in for the one male character in the whole play. And it becomes a scene of, like, very... I hope it comes across in, like, a very... Um, it's a really complicated humiliation because, of course, no one knows yet what they're requiring of this character to do, to stand there and pretend to be a man and get the posture right and they're kind of physically adjusting the protagonist's body in that scene. And I think that scene for me really sums up how humiliation functions in the book because it's happening twice and that the matron, in not being sure of... or having this quite a, a big sense of who they are but maybe not a willingness to express it just yet or maybe an inability to find the right way to express it, knows what's happening, but everyone around them doesn't know what's happening, so that's humiliating, again, in the knowledge that they also don't know what they're doing to the protagonist. I think that's it, that dual function of it was important to me in the book. 
as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. That I rambled, but no, that makes sense. You don't really specify in the book what the time period is, but I guess <laughs> if one does the maths,、uh, there are a few clues, and if you kind of were to guess, you would guess nineties. Yeah, I think around the nineties. Yeah. Again, like I, I, not that it was on purpose, but I didn't want to get too caught up in external detail in that way. So in my mind, it's like loosely nineties. Yeah. Yeah, but then, some people have said eighties, and I think that would also make sense to、yeah. the book's logic as well. So, but you can feel that it's a different time to now in terms of how the, the sexuality or the identity of the protagonist is kind of received and、mm. artic- it allows it to be so in the body and through、yeah. through looks and through subtlety and through reading, rather than through labels and language, which、yeah. I think we're a bit more concerned about now. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. agree. I think for that laser focus. It had to be a very narrow passage through which we're seeing everything,、mm. and quite like a compressed environment. And that way, I didn't want there to be any external pressure or external. I mean, because I wanted the politics of the school to be the main and only functioning of politics that happens in the book, which I realise is like a complicated thing to do with queerness. But it also allows you to, yeah, be in the body in a different way. Yeah, and to allow the body to take up more space, I think too. Yeah, and I think that the. Sort of the shame and the humiliation, in a strange way, feeds into the sexual relationship with Mrs. S.、Mm. Like their sex itself doesn't feel very—it's like kink. It's a bit kink, kind of kinky to stuff. You know, yeah. It depends where you're at. Yeah,、like, depends who you are. Yeah, what yeah. you think kinky no, is. Yeah,、so. exactly, exactly. But then there's. The surrounding context and the sort of secrecy and shame and humiliation and sort of other, there's something. There's a kind of salvation in their sex because this outside of it, that person feels quite unaccepted in that space or quite othered in that space,、mm-hmm. and then they feel so accepted through the sex. But then it still seems to lend a kind of S and M vibe to the sex. I felt. <laughs> yeah.、Uh, yeah. What was I trying to do with? I, I think that I wanted there to be a decent asserting of self and of personhood in the sex for it to、mm. work.、Mm. So I didn't want. I also for the power dynamic too that felt important for there to be like a there isn't necessarily an equality of power between them, but there is like an understanding of each other's positions,、mm. um, and so that felt really important to get right. And in order to have that get right, you needed people who knew what they wanted、mm. and also were willing to. Assume what the other person wants. Again, going back to that idea of mimicry and、um, how we become each other in desire, then when we're desired and desiring, that that kind of interchangeability between the desired object interested me because there aren't a lot of spaces in which that can happen. Because I had this sort of compressed environment, it allowed that to be a bit more visible. That they both kind of swap places in that physically and emotionally. Yeah, yeah. we're kind of almost coming to the end. So please do prepare questions for Kay, but.、Um, Just to talk a bit about what you said—that the school provides a sort almost microcosmic environment for the the politics, really—and that that is so. It's it's a closed environment. One thing I found interesting, though, is when the character calls home and says about their mum. I found this re- like a thing I'd never thought of before when it came to coming out or queer identity, and it says, "You write." The confession of my gayness left her permanently patronised, overly exposed. I introduced a subject she knew nothing about, forced her into an ignorance she found frightening, and that's actually the character speaking to their mum on on the phone, remembering coming out 
yeah. to their mum, but it could just as easily be about Mrs S, which is kind of... Interesting. But I'd never thought of someone of that dynamic in terms of coming out. Which part of it hadn't you thought of before? I hadn't thought of making someone feel ignorant. Yeah, I... I know it sounds obvious, but I kind of just hadn't... Although maybe I have, because sometimes... Sometimes I'll be talking about gay stuff and a family member will be like, remember, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> or or um, why do we make gay people sound more interesting than straight people? Oh. I've been accused of... Oh, wow. So it kind of reminded me of that, but I hadn't really thought of it or I hadn't really seen it written down like that before. I think, it, I think I, for me, it was interesting from a point of probably a combination of empathy and also what you're talking about. I think I needed the protagonist to be self-aware, so it felt important that they were able to reflect on that relationship as well. Mm. I hadn't thought about it in relation to Mrs. S, but I guess it also makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think back in the day, I slept with a lot of straight cis women, so maybe that's mm. like where that empathy is coming Not from as well. Not that surprised to hear that, having read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we, well, I mean, I'm sure we all, we all did before, like, pre-app, you know? Like, it's, it happens, and whether or not, they, I, you know, it's not something, it doesn't have to be, like, a, an identity that lasted for those people. But I think that idea of ignorance probably came from that, just the sense that uh, you can also leave somebody else in the dark, I guess. For the mother, I think it becomes like an integral cog in their relationship because it's a way for the protagonist to also forgive their own mother, which is harsh. You know, you have to find these ways to work through it with people when they aren't going to come to a proper moment of understanding. So you have to find, again, language for how they're misunderstanding, I suppose. Mm. So that was one way. I don't, I, you know. And you find such, such beautiful language for understanding um, the character in the book of the housemistress, who is a kind of older, queer character, who's also not really out at the boarding school, mm-hmm. and they form a friendship, and it is so beautiful. And there is a scene—I think I can say this, like without spoil. There's a scene where the housemistress gives the matron, the, the matron, the, the protagonist, a chain, like a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, and um. Yeah, it's, that's almost like another romance. It's beautiful. That was one of the most unexpected parts of the book. I think that definitely wasn't... Not that I, I never really write with very much of a plan. Everything kind of evolves as I'm going. But the housemistress was like... I think it's, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of fantasy and how that functions for queer people because, of course, for such a long time, you're living in fantasy more than you're living in the real world, like before coming out or even once you've come out and then mm-hmm. you're not quite sure what to do with yourself. And in my fantasy from when I was probably the same age as the girls at school, there was ideas of, like, mentors and this person that I would meet that would kind of show me the way. And, I, I mean, it, back, it, for me, it was an English teacher that I'd have an affair with, but I chose a headmaster's wife because why not mm-hmm. go to the next level? <laughs> uh, but I, I, I haven't kind of fully formed my thoughts on it, but... I think the whole book comes from this like very soft place of queer fantasy where I like kind of yeah. work through these yeah. characters that maybe I might have invented and they've been in the back of my mind when I was like 14. And of course everyone had like gay PE teachers at school that you weren't allowed to like fully relate to because otherwise yeah. you get called a lesbian and they're called a lesbian. It's a whole like 12-year-old mess. Yeah. So I think there's also like a I'm paying tribute to that person too because I had a few. I had one very great definitely gay PE teacher while I was at school as well, who obviously wasn't allowed to be out and it probably was kind of a rough time for them. They got pseudo-bullied by the girls, so the housemistress is a real tender one for me. 
Mm. Um, and a really nice one to write to. I feel like I really knew that person I, I hope because in part like you end up becoming that person yeah. through fantasy yeah. as well like, I think fantasy also you grow into that person exactly yeah. fantasy also paves the way for this kind of like you can externalize all those qualities as well yeah you kind of become the mentee becomes yeah. the mentor yeah um we can't spoil the ending but I am curious and I'm sure people who have read to the end might also be curious that did you know what the ending was when you began writing no. And that's the only thing I can ask without going too close to what the ending actually no, is. No, the ending... Well, now you're giving me the hard task trying to yeah, ask the question. Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks, mate. Um, the ending, like I said in the beginning, this, the idea for writing the novel was to write a happy ending because we get so bullied out of them as queers. And I think the ending is still happy. I do think the ending is still happy. I think what I was trying to do was fit quite a, to use the overused word, heteronormative framework onto a book that then wouldn't really lend itself to being within that kind of plot. So... The idea of like, you know, having an ending that feels satisfying. I had to kind of reevaluate what a satisfying ending meant in the romance genre. We're going back to genre, and if you look at romance, it's largely heterosexual, of course, largely cis, and the ending is always like the white pony and the sunset, and mm. you know, disappearing into it together. And that it, it just, I did try it out, and I was like, this feels off, and so I had to go back and kind of. Yeah. rehearse the ending as well it, it took a little bit of work to get around what happiness would actually mean in that scenario you know I had to rethink it yeah before we go to questions two quick things so who would play Mrs S in a film <laughs> you go first we talked about this we you... talked about it on the phone and I think the Rachel Wise would be no but then we decided, we decided. that she's already been claimed now yeah. as like a queer she's done it she's yeah, done she's... so much snogging and now. then Claire, yeah, she's already done it. So, so many and then Claire from the shop, Klaus, said um, uh, Kate Winslet. I mean, that would be a hot choice. That would be really good. I, I think Julian Anderson wing. deserves a shot because hasn't done enough snogs. I personally Yeah, true. It. Okay. Does anyone want to suggest anyone? <laughs> Twensies read it, but... Yeah. yeah. Oh... Yeah, quite. I, interesting. Quite, could, I see it actually. I can see it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Anyone okay. else want to suggest anyone? Name me what? Again, I like all these people with excellent posture. Yeah, it's interesting. Is she perfect? Blonde? Is she blonde or brunette? She's brunette, right? No, we don't know. Do we? I think I ever mentioned the hair colour once in the whole book. Do I? Maybe you don't actually. No, you no. don't. <laughs> no. Someone was paying There's attention. There's not a lot of like, physical descriptors in the book actually, so it, it could yeah. be that leaves it wide open. Yeah. But posture feels very important, so I'm really happy with those. Um, and before we go to questions, what are you working on at the moment? Are you you're working on another book? Uh, working on the second novel and also finishing the poetry manuscript. It's those two small things. <laughs> and yeah. very busy talking about this set. Yes. But yeah, poetry and the second novel, both. With the second novel's not the sequel. Sadly, no. <laughs> I mean, could be read as, I suppose. Okay. Why not? That's the most you can say. That's the most I can say for now because I haven't finished it. We haven't written it yet. yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, does anyone want to ask any questions to Kay? You already asked the most important question. Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> You've talked about the way that you wrote everything in this like really immediate present tense. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask how you balance that kind of like almost myopic writing with fantasy and with a kind of like almost like a lack of future occasionally without making it... So lack of future? Yeah, like a yeah. kind of like without making it super depressing because um, I didn't find it super, super depressing. Super depressing, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, no uh, future is depressing. How do I balance it? 
Well, firstly, I'm glad that I do. <laughs> no, that's, like, that's a relief. Um, I don't know. I think, I think not overdoing things like the... Not overdoing, that's the wrong word. I think keeping a really fine balance of things like we were discussing, like the shame, the humiliation, the homophobia, and keeping that in check with also the character's pleasure. I think it's kind of like a, a balance between those two things, which also, I guess, is like a very queer thing to have to maintain. Because I was aware of it, and the, I didn't want it to feel depressing, so I'm glad that it doesn't. But I also didn't want it to feel lacquered, you know, lacquered over. I didn't want it to feel varnished. I want it to feel uh, not real. God, that's like the worst word ever. Um, I wanted it to feel like it hovered somewhere in between all of those things, I guess. And I don't, I mean, I'm glad that I found the balance. I think that's probably one of the things that I was most worried about. Yeah, I think that's probably my answer. Making sure there was enough pleasure alongside the humiliation. Also making sure those things were allowed to overlap in a way that felt true to the protagonists themselves, I guess. It's kind of a roundabout answer. I have to think of a better one. Any more questions, Marianne? We've got one down here. Hi. Hi. Um, so you talked a lot about writing sex, but it would be interesting to hear you talk about how you wrote the seduction aspect and how you just thought about the two characters, yeah, I guess becoming more and more intimate and what that was, that writing process is like and what was important to you. I had to kind of think about it like a, I obviously haven't written a novel before, so I did study, I read a lot of books like Giovanni's Room. I read like how scenes function, which sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but it's one of the hardest things about writing, right, is like how to build rather than like drop or like lose focus. And in the end, I, th- I think I wrote a list, I would write a list of like ideas for scenes, like in kind of three or four words, and then I would go through those and see which ones felt the strongest. And I ended up not having, with this book, I didn't write enough. I had to write more in the editing process. So I think I can be, sometimes I can shave too much off with the, and with the seduction especially, we had to work on that. So I think I did like, no, we didn't. It was the opposite. I did too much seducing. And then I had to, <laughs> I had to buy, <laughs> kitchen in here somewhere looking at me. I, we had to, I had to shave off the seduction because that was a part that felt the most familiar to me, I think, was, <laughs> figuring out whether you can have what you want or if it's just something that will stay in your mind. So I think at that, because it was so familiar, I, I overwrote that quite heavily and then had to decide which, in which scenes it felt like it was working the strongest. Yeah, I hope that kind of semi-answers the question-ish. It does feel that it comes at just the right time. Well, <laughs> the, very good. You know, like the, you're, the longing is dragged out just the right amount of time where you're like, and then, you know... It doesn't take it doesn't take too long, but it doesn't come too soon. Well, that's great. I would say. <laughs> but I'm no expert. <laughs> I mean, mate, neither am I. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably that was a, diff- a really difficult aspect of the book as well was to make sure that it wasn't dragging on too long. Yeah, as as gays can sometimes. So sometimes the longing can just keep on longing. Keep on longing. Yeah, yeah. Don't R- stop. Won't yeah, stop. Don't stop. Won't stop. <laughs> um, any other questions from for Kay? Hey, thank you. Um, I was going to ask you if there's a reason the protagonist is Australian, which obviously... (laughs) (laughs) Asking for a friend. What I really want to say is, is is it important that they're not English and I guess not part of that class system? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right on the money. I think it had to be somebody who felt like an outsider to that environment in order for the environment to be filtered in the way that I needed it to be, like to be experienced in the way that, like, you know, experienced um, for the first time, I suppose. I think also that, like, there was, I think at some point in the 90s, there was this overselling of a visa for Australian, like, young, really young Australians, like, between 18 and 20 to come over and work in these, like, kind of 
horrendous boarding schools as with really strange titles like matron and it like i think i was able to borrow from that and then set up what worked for me as an author yeah so exactly right yeah can i add an add-on question to that which i didn't ask you but wanted to which is the protagonist is not given a name Mm -hmm. what was i'd love to hear a bit more about the thinking behind that um there actually there was a bit of thinking behind this which is rare for me um (laughs) I, I think I had I think I have this idea of like a, a trans potential and obviously the idea of a name is like this very uh it can be quite a heavy thing, right? Like it, it can feel inflexible, it could make the book feel inflexible too. Mm-hmm. The book had to feel like it could um move in any direction. It had to feel like this mm-hmm. character was allowed to change and like I the, with the ending of the book, the namelessness felt even more important where they might go on to then shift into like a different part of themselves and a different part of their life I think like naming can feel very like that's interesting because it does feel that the character is maybe at that moment where they are soon gonna choose another name so why name them yeah that's that's interesting and then I didn't want it to become a burden in the text either I think it when I did try it out with a name it felt like an interruption to what was happening you know and I think the idea of miss this idea of misnaming this idea of underestimating what that means felt more important. Uh, but I didn't want to make too much of it in the way that it felt too realised because also you can't then burden the character with also the pressure of their own name and the way they might change. Like, I wanted it to feel very in flux. I'm not, like, names to me feel like facts sometimes and I'm really not interested in, in facts. Like, I think which is also why the book isn't really set in a particular era. Mm. Um, I think sometimes, yeah, I don't know why... A lot of far smarter people have written about this, this idea of, like, queerness being ephemeral rather than factual mm-hmm. and not evidence-based, but something that's lighter, light-footed and flexible and always in flux, I think, which is what I love about being queer so much. So mm-hmm. I wanted that to be reflected in the book too. That is. Um, we have time for one last question, if anyone would like to... Oh, just on the theme of names again. Um, mm. So the book is obviously called Mrs S. Mm-hmm. So it's, and you say so you didn't think so much about the naming of the protagonist but with the missus was there a lot of thought about her being a missus and not a miss or a doctor or something else because that's giving a very clear I think yes I did want there to be some clear signalling I think there's also a part of it that's also about uh, old-fashioned erotica I think this idea of like a missus s feels a bit like a like a chaste letter or something and I were lesbian pulp Exactly, I, yeah. I, which I also, like, the idea of, like, lesbian pulp fiction was interesting to me as well. I think I, when I was talking about fantasy before, I think this idea of, like, a Mrs. S is part of that fantasy for me, like a queer fantasy. And when I talk to lots of my queer friends, uh, it seems to be one that's kind of shared, especially within a school environment who you sort of had massive crushes on. It wasn't nine times out of ten, it was somebody in a position of authority who was married because, like, that was just, like, what we were obsessed over. Because I think there's also an idea of, like that being unobtainable in a way as well, I think, which builds into the erotic aspect of it. Hopefully without becoming cliched because the fine line, but yeah. Um, okay, I think we're at time. Just thank you so, so much for... Thank you so, so much. Because this is the first time you've really talked about it's, the book in a talk and you're incredible. I'm like sweating. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, thank you. The book is wonderful. I urge everyone to buy it. I absolutely loved it. And thank you can read it again tomorrow and might do. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, 
visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.